once again. Pete and Keeley at the Skinner Barn in Wastefield tells the story of Pete Bartell and Keeley Stevens, America's swinging, singing sweethearts. Performances at the Skinner Barn start Wednesday, July 29th and run through Sunday, August 9th. For tickets, reservations, or more information, call 802-496-4422 or buy your tickets online at theskinnerbarn.com. Pete and Keeley is sponsored by Brothers Building, Bourne's Energy, The Ellison Family, Pring Plumbing, Wastefield Champlain Valley Telecom, and the Mad River Valley Chamber of Commerce. Our season sponsor is Sugarbush Resort. Call 802-496-4422 to reserve your tickets or buy them online at theskinnerbarn.com. And join us for an evening of professional summer theater in the beautiful Mad River Valley. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Beautiful morning out there. Thanks for spending part of it with us. Coming up on the program in just a moment here, we're going to dive into the fabulous world of wheat. We'll take your phone calls as well on the program today. Love to hear from you at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. We'll uh, be joined also this morning later on by our White House crew to begin hour number two. And uh, I've got a, I've called this morning a few questions from some uh, pundits and some other folks about questions that they would like to see at tonight's Republican presidential debate. And I would like you to weigh in on that as well, too. And uh, again, our phone number is on the program. You can join us at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. Toll free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. We uh, begin this morning. Let's give a nice warm radio Vermont welcome this morning to Amy Halloran, who is the author of The New Bread Basket. How, then I, I said yesterday, this will be the longest subtitle that you will hear this year on the program. How the new crop of grain growers... Plant breeders, millers, maltsters, bakers, brewers, and local food activists are redefining our daily loaf. Amy, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I know the publisher came up with that subtitle, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They came up with the whole title. As a writer, we don't have much to do with titling, just making the body of the work. There you go. Um, bef before we dive too deeply into wheat, which, uh, you know, the first thing is I had no idea that wheat is the single largest crop in the world. By how much? Oh, I don't know what the second is. I do know that it is our staple crop, and we've been relying upon it for thousands of years. Okay. It's the food that built Western civilization, Wheat, barley, and other crops started growing in the Fertile Crescent, and it's, we're at a really interesting moment in history to walk away from gluten and, the, and be afraid of the things that got us here, the very foods that led us to where we are. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so what's its evolution from the Middle East? Well, people brought seeds with them wherever they went. Um, and that's the simple, the simple story. Um, as settlers came to New England, they brought with them wheat and rye. On coastal New England, uh, wheat didn't do so well. It doesn't love a humid summer. So you can imagine that the Northeast is rather poorly suited to wheat, but 
rye is a much hardier crop, and the food that developed around that was corn and rye. So cornmeal rye, is, or Asian as it was called, Asian, and rye was a very, very common bread and pancake um, throughout New England. Mm-hmm. When did you start, uh, this book that you write, you say really started with an, an oatmeal ganache bar. Tell, tell us how that is. Okay, so I've always been a baker, um, and I've always been very fascinated with pancakes especially. And my two interests began to collide about five years ago. My husband, um, who is a tree surgeon, had been doing some landscape lighting, and uh, on his way home from his business trip, he brought me an oatmeal ganache cookie from a bakery in the Hudson Valley called Wild Hive. And at first, I was rather ungrateful. I thought, you get nights in a hotel, and I get a cookie. But I had no idea that that cookie would open up my world. The taste of the freshly milled and freshly ground oats and wheat were so loud that they really competed for the flavors against really nice chocolate and really nice butter. I was just astonished that grains could have so much taste. And that opened up the door, that single cookie, I remember exactly where I was standing in our kitchen, that single cookie opened up the door to this great world of people who are reviving regional grain production. I was so compelled by the taste that I had to follow the flower back to the field and meet the people who are growing and using grains outside of the grain belt. Mm-hmm. So what do you, how, what do you, how do you explain this revival? Even here in Vermont, people are actively trying to produce their own wheat. They're trying to really make it local. What, what, what accounts for that? So it's kind of the last step of the locavore puzzle. You know, people are very interested, especially in Vermont, as you know, to revitalize regional food systems. And grains are kind of late to the locavore table because they require so much more processing in land and equipment than other crops do. To get a tomato or a peach from field to table is pretty, it's fairly easy. It takes time. It does take markets and, you know, infrastructure. But it's not the same as grains, which require, they're, they're a large volume crop make any money at all when you're competing against the big daddy commodities is pretty pretty tough um and so you need the land and the equipment you know the harvesting equipment for small-scale stuff just didn't exist 10 years ago say when more people started to get into it Mm -hmm. luckily in vermont there are some great growers who have been interested in this for much longer than the locavore movement. Jack Laser and Ben Gleason had both been um, growing grains and working to get them to market, first for themselves and then to market. Um, so there's some, some of that already happening and people are already ahead of the game in Vermont. Mm-hmm. But what's the need, what's the motivation to have to have diversity in this product? I mean, what's wrong with the, the, the what seems to be an abundant supply in the Midwest? Right, right. Well, there's a number of problems. First off, if you look just at um, wheat, we grow wheat in big places where wheat is not um, 
necessarily the only thing that can grow. Um, we always had staple crops wherever we were, but to move it back into place provides food security, job security. It allows farmers to earn a living um, and us to have access to food. In the spring of last year, this was really demonstrated. Um, the continued drought in Kansas made the organic wheat crop in America unavailable. Um, unavailable because it was non-existent. So or some organic mills were turning to uh, Argentinian wheat, organic Argentinian wheat, um, and elsewhere, not the American crop. So just because it, we do have large supplies elsewhere doesn't mean that we shouldn't have something that we can work with closer to home. What about GMOs? Where does that play into this? GMOs are so confusing. Um, for wheat, there are no GMOs on the market right now. They are getting tested, but there's nothing on the market yet. We have GMO corn and soy, and um, it's, so it's not it's not a real issue. To me, the larger... Wait, I don't want to sound like it doesn't. It's not a threat. It, we will have GMO wheat, and that is going to be a problem. But it's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem that I can see with grains from far away is that they keep farmers and growers at the whims of a commodity system that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the cost of raising a crop, and it keeps this food. Um, very few varieties are growing. When you're, when you're working for the commodity system and within the commodity system, you're growing a few kinds of wheat that will hit the mark for the industrial milling and industrial malting sector mm -hmm. in the case of barley. That kind of monoculture is really, really detrimental to agriculture. Um, and that certainly was the case historically. When wheat was grown right where we are before the Erie Canal, um, wheat has always been the really high-value crop, and farmers tended to plant it over and over again, kind of beating the land um, and not replenishing the soil with crop rotations. So that is, that is kind of what's happening elsewhere, too. Um, Farmers everywhere, conventional and organic, are realizing the importance of rotating crops for soil health, for erosion control, and a number of other factors. But when you're working at a small scale, I think that that becomes of utmost importance and it allows the farming that happens to uh, be done more carefully and with more stewardship for the land. We're talking with Amy Halloran. She's the author of The New Bread Basket, How the New Crop of Grain Growers, Plant Breeders, Millers, Maltsters, Bakers, Brewers, and Local Food Activists are Redefining Our Daily Loaf. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the gluten issue here. What, what's, what's your take here on what, what's going on? Everybody seems to think that they are uh, intolerant. Yes. Um, 
Right, right. So the rise of true celiac disease is real. We are showing more people in the population having more celiac. But in my opinion, the non-celiac wheat sensitivity, as some are calling it now, um, I think that that is the result of wheat and gluten becoming the latest in dietary targets. I think that lacking a strong and unified food culture in the United States, we tend to glom on to demonizing ingredients. When I was growing up, fat and salt were the demons, and, um, you know, so low fat, no salt, then carbs came in as the thing to watch out for, the thing that was really going to ruin us, and now I think it's gluten. And I really think that we need something as humans to bond over with food. And since we don't have really strong food traditions, we're the melting pot. We have so many different habits. Um, I think that overall we end up going for a villain rather than the union. It's too hard to bring together a country of this size made from so many disparate tastes but we can try for some kind of unity, and unfortunately, I think gluten has become that union. Wow, like uh, r- rally around the gluten. I mean, that that's so what's going on with everybody? Is this, I guess, psychosomatic? I mean, there seem to be so many people that are have complaining right. about problems. I don't, I don't think that it's all psychosomatic. I think that there are, there are problems within this larger thing. For me, it's a problem with processing. We are so removed from where the food is grown and the, where the food is processed. So I think that we can remedy a lot of the ills that we're having by returning to local mills. And by local mills, I'm envisioning more of the stone mills that are happening all around. In Vermont, there are a number of people who are milling their own grains and using them. Elmore Mountain Bread is great. Ben Gleason at Gleason's Grains mills his own, and Jack Laser also mills their own. Those are all stone mills, and there are more stone mills um, in and around. They are very affordable ways for people to start in on grain processing. To me, they are, again, um, a, there's much a metaphoric solution as a realistic solution. Most of the wheat that we eat in the United States is roller milled. So roller milling is a process. I like to describe it as uh, using ringer washers, a series of ringer washers. If you can picture the old rollers that squeeze things through, yeah. um, would squeeze through a piece of clothes, Picture it with little kernels of grain. And roller milling is a process of separation. So they separate the grain kernel. A a grain kernel is made up of three parts. Bran is the outside protective coating. Germ is what makes the seed grow. And the endosperm is the inside uh, food that would feed a plant if if a plant was going to grow. Okay. And roller milling divides out all of those pieces and allows a mill to rejoin whatever they want. So, in general, 
scent bran and definitely the germ contain the fat, they are stripped away from the flower, so it's just endosperm. It's just the starchy endosperm that we're getting. Even the whole wheat flour that we tend to get might not have the germ and its beneficial fats and nutrients because those, they, they reduce shelf life, um, and shelf life becomes of importance as you're pushing farther and farther away from the point of production. Mm-hmm. We also favor white bread. White bread and white flour, we have wanted that, and that's not, that's not just new to America or anything. Right. As soon as, you know, as soon as people began milling and we had hierarchies, people wanted whiter flour. So Roman slaves would sift out the brand as much as they could. But to back it up to what a local solution could look like, stone milling, by contrast from roller milling, squishes together all parts of the kernels. You can sift out some of that matter. You can sift out some of the bran so you get a white, whiter flour, but you still have the germ squished within, and I think that makes a far more nutritious Flour. And mm-hmm. I think that that is going to be part of the solution. And certainly anecdotally, bakers find this, that um, sourdough, long-term sourdough fermentations, people who otherwise can't eat bread find some luck with eating these kind of mm-hmm. breads that artisan bakeries can tend to make. Um, I really think that it's very necessary to keep the bran and the germ and the, and the endosperm all together so that we can slow down the digestion of that starchy endosperm, yeah. of the energy mm. of the plant, and not have the blood sugar spikes that happen with white flour, which behaves in our body very much as a sugar. Well, I was just going to ask you, what is it that's so appealing about white flour? I don't know, because I am completely enchanted with whole grains. I... With, there's a, there's a thing that chefs have, fat equals flavor. So when you look at a grain, the fat, with the fat being in the germ and the, um, and the brand largely, mostly in the germ, you're stripping away a lot of the flavor. So, I, you know, I don't know why it was so compelling historically to get to the whiter stuff it's certainly more wasteful to, to be sifting off percentages of the bran. And if you've ever grown a little bit of wheat in your yard, you'll see how much work it is. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really intense to think about how much of this food we want to discard to get at the seeming gold of white flour. Is, I mean, is small-scale production really... Is that a is that a viable solution? I mean, is it mm. is it really? I mean, is it even profitable considering how much work it is? I mean, I'm just thinking realistically here. Well, it's very tricky, but there are people who are making it happen. Um, there are farmers who are working with with grains as a viable part of a diverse farm, and certainly as we get more into sustainable regional food systems, diversity is the key. Um, 
agriculture needs animal inputs to have fertile soil is my understanding. And places like Rogers Farmstead, they are working on this model. They have cows, they have small grains, they have some oats, some Redeemer wheat, which is a Vermont variety that they're growing. They mill some for themselves and sell it at farmer's markets, and they also are selling it within um, within the state to bakers. That they, the whole kernel that they are grinding then themselves. Um, so it's working. It's working. It's slow. It's small, certainly, this revival of regional grain production. But people are making it work because farmers need the in- income. Farmers need the, the plant diversity. And people are really, really fond of this way of eating. Who controls the wheat? Is there a cartel that controls wheat in this country? I'm not incredibly versed in that. I know there's um, there's a book called The Grain Merchants that I think describes what you're getting at. I familiarize myself much more with the, the pioneers who are working outside of the commodity system. So I know them from the small side and not from the big let me ask you about the one thing here and let you go you talk about the farm to table which we talk about a lot in this state you say here the concept of farm to table is more than a passing infatuation it's a recognition that eating is an agricultural act and an attempt to combat some of the many problems in that process one measure of economic success in america is housing starts but such metrics aren't going to keep their meaning as wage depression continues to affect our country if New York City needs New York flour, maybe some of the pressures of suburban development can be eased. These ideas and concrete actions taken toward change are invisibly buttering our local bread, and bakers are leading the way, helping us to eat and reconnect with the landscape. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, and another great, great example of that is the partnership that the partnerships that Randy George at Red Hen Bakery has established over the last 15 years. So he's worked with the Nitty Gritty Grain Company, which is a rural farm. He's worked with Ben Gleason. And just recently he established a partnership with, I'm terrible at pronouncing things, so there's a French farm um, that has a mill called Le Moulin de Seb. And that is enabling Red Hen to do that very thing of getting very, very local with its grain and sourcing 95% of its flour from within 150 miles. This is a lunar landing for regional flour, and I think that that kind of path-breaking move might be a way that this is going to happen. Um, And it wasn't just the farm-to-table allure. You know, there's a lot of romanticism about knowing your farmer. But there's more than that. This was prompted by a desire to know, on the part of Red Hen, to know their ingredients. And also by that threat that I was mentioning. You know, last year when organic wheat supplies went to sell off, the American organic wheat supplies fell off. That's, that was really a problem. Bakers were having to adjust 
these crops that had incredible variability because they came from so far away and were not the traditional supplies and because grains are just a natural ingredient and there's always going to be a little bit of variableness to it. I believe that um, the farmers at the mill in Quebec and Randy are very happy to have this relationship because there's going to be a more stable supply of flour. They know what they're, they know where the wheat comes from. It's not from a gigantic anonymous source that's pulling things together. It's from this one farm. We're, uh, we're pretty big fans of Red Hen here on the program, just to, mm-hmm. to, to let you know. Um, so do you think um, this gluten thing, the, the demonization is going to end and there's going to be a replacement of another ingredient? I bet there is. And, you know, at first when, when I was thinking about why am I going into this, you know, why am I falling in love with flour while the rest of the country is falling out of love with it? And I was really kind of annoyed by the gluten the anti-gluten trend for a long time, but I look at it from a different perspective. Um, A baker at a place called the Bread Lab in Washington State opened my eyes to the idea that this villainization opens up our minds and leaves us open to consider other possibilities. So I'm hoping that more people will find that Stone ground grains are really wonderful to use, and I'm I'm curious to see what is going to fall next to um, the demon drama. But I'm more more hopeful about people really seeing how great freshly ground flour tastes. Last question, Amy. What's your question tonight for the Republican presidential candidates? Doesn't necessarily have to be food related. Oh boy. I guess if I had the ear of a politician, I would want to see some kind of support for the regional farming that I want to see happen. So where where could we get uh, the, the infrastructure? How could we get more small mills going so that people can connect with this staple crop? that is uh that has gotten us where we are hmm wonder how you could be anti-small mill that would be interesting to hear uh right right thank you for your time this morning good luck in your efforts thank you so much it's been a pleasure amy halloran is the author of the new bread basket how the new crop of grain growers plant breeders millers maltsters bakers brewers uh, Randy George at Red Hen Cafe and Bakery now described uh, in lunar terms. I guess that if uh, this would make him the Neil Armstrong of uh, of local wheat uh, and local food activists are redefining our daily loaf. See, we could make that. We could even make that subhead the longest subhead we've had this year on the program even longer and get some of our local folks in on this too. Uh, by the way, uh, it really is quite a story down at Red Hen Cafe and Bakery. The effort that they do make down there to really connect with the people that provide the product and to uh, to really make it local and to really source it locally, too, and to keep many of those local farmers and those that are really trying to advance this whole grain movement um, and to, to keep them in business. And it's also, as you heard Amy mention, it's in their best interest, too. There was a really... A, 
period of time where the price of wheat was, it was, it was, uh, you know, you expected to hear announcers in the morning talk about what its cost was right after a barrel of oil or something like that. Uh, your thoughts, comments, we'll take your calls the rest of the way this morning. Uh, if you would like to uh, pipe in some thought or comment you have about wheat, you're, of course, welcome to do that. If there's another topic that you would like to discuss, I would love to hear what your question is that uh, you would have for the Republican presidential candidates tonight. I have a few stories to talk about some analysis ahead of time, and uh, we can also chat about a few other items as well, too. And you can reach us on the program at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. Toll-free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll get some political analysis of tonight's debate. Eric Davis will be joining us on the program. We're also going to head up to Burlington tomorrow, you know, electronically on the phone, that is. Uh, we're going to chat uh, and talk about this incredible story of the mural that was found in a synagogue. Uh, just an incredible story. We'll chat about that coming up on the program tomorrow. Again, our numbers, you can reach us at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. Toll-free, 877-291-8255. Quick break. We'll be back after these important announcements. Are you age 65 or 